I see, you know, trauma as kind of widespread. You know, trauma is, like you said, an overwhelming experience and being alone with no support to manage that overwhelming experience in our childhood when we, you know, we need someone there with us. We won't survive without our caregivers. And we know that um, in a very physical way. You know, I breastfed my son and he was very aware that I was his food source. I felt like a cow at times, I would say. (laughs) I I was very much in tune with my animal, you know, animal uh, nature, if you will. Um, But but that is our our just ingrained need for human connection um, that you're carried, you know, by someone for nine months. And then you come out and they just kind of throw you and say, good luck. (laughs) You know, that's kind of the way Uh, A lot of parenting happens in the United States of America. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome. Duran Young is a licensed therapist specializing in racial trauma and legal and, and legacy burdens. She's also a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. She's a retired military officer, a founder of Black Therapists Rock, which is a nonprofit organization with a network of over 30,000 mental health professionals committed to reducing the psychological impact of systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma. She obtained her social work degree from the University of Texas. And during that uh, degree, she studied abroad in Ghana, West Africa, for two semesters, creating a high school counseling center for under-resourced students. Kind of cool. Duran has visited over 37 different countries, and her clinical experience spans across four different continents. She resides in Washington, D.C., in the area of Washington, D.C., with her 10-year-old son. Our website is blacktherapistsrock.com. We will put it there. There you have it already. Duran, it's such a joy and an honor to have you with us. It's a pleasure and welcome, welcome, welcome to our little community. Yes, thank you for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Where do we start? Where do we start? Well, um, I, don't, I don't know if we've shared with you, we've been working, we are working at the moment on a, our next film. So the first film was The Wisdom of Trauma, which dealt kind of with individual trauma and touched a little bit on intergenerational historical trauma. But then the next film we're working on, it's focused predominantly on collective and historical trauma and racial trauma um, in the US, but wherever we are traveling, uh, that conversation of racialized trauma is coming so strongly in any conversation. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's global, it's collecting, it's here, and 
there's so many patterns we're seeing all over. The cultures might be different, but the pattern in which racialized trauma uh, manifests and lives in the, our bodies and the structures that support it is, is very much the same. So I was wondering if we can begin with, maybe you can share about your journey of um, where did you start? Um, how did your awareness of trauma started to arise and um, in your own journey and where and, and how the racialized trauma piece came into being or into awareness um, in your own life? Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, like I said, I went to University of Texas uh, for my social work program, but I was born and raised in Texas. And I um, had a mother who had three children by the time she was 19 um, and she struggled a lot with mental illness and addiction. Actually, she struggled with substance use or crack cocaine um, addiction during the 80s and 90s, like many Black people around that time period, uh, really suffered uh, with the, the war on drugs and just addiction, a lot of addiction in our communities during that time. Um, and I honestly didn't know if I was suffering because I was poor or if we were suffering because we were Black. Because in my, where I, you know, where I'm from, the two were kind of synonymous that a lot of Black people happen to be in poverty. And there's a lot of sufferings in those communities where people, you know, find themselves in poverty and particularly growing up in a very Republican place. You know, I love I love what Bessel says about the connection between politics and trauma. Um, but there's a, a strong connection between you know what's happening in our systemic or our uh, cultural environment and what happens in our daily lives, especially if you happen to be in a black body. So for me, growing up with this mother who was suffering and had her own struggles, but very limited access to resources, it made me wonder, like, who's supposed to help us? You know, I would look around, I would see violence, I would see all these things happening in my neighborhood. And I was like, who's coming to help us? You know, it wasn't the police. As we know, many Black people don't trust the police. They don't trust medical facilities. There's, there's really not a lot of places uh, where Black people and brown, Black and Brown people will go and trust that the system is going to help them. So we navigated, you know, welfare, we navigated homelessness, we, you know, moved from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. Um, when my mother couldn't take care of us or financially or just emotionally, she didn't have the capacity, she would drop us off at my grandmother's uh, doorstep and just drive off. Hmm. So I had a lot of abandonment issues. I had very low self-esteem. And I really, like I said, I couldn't figure out if it was because we were poor and living in poverty and, you know, constantly thinking about whether or not we were going to have water or food or, you know, just the basic needs. I couldn't understand, you know, if, if I was less than because I didn't have these, these basic needs and basic resources, or if I was less than because I was Black. And there's still a lot of people in the United States of America who, who ponder that question. A friend of mine who's also a therapist says that, you know, uh, a hungry belly can't ponder the, the wonders of the universe. So when our basic needs are not met, we're not really able to be connected to the world, you know, in a very deep or meaningful way. We're just struggling for survival. Well, that was um, definitely a, a, a challenging start to begin with. And, and 
what would you say was the impact? Like, did you, when did you start um, finding yourself despite of the trauma? What was the journey of uncovering yourself? Um, where does, did your healing journey begin uh, early on? I, I, I like to say that healing was always there. You know, that's why I love that sun, that song, Here Comes the Sun, because the sun mm-hmm. always comes, you know, it's coming back, even when there's clouds, it's still there. Um, so I like to think that my mother, she was a very loving and affectionate person when she was able to be present with us. And she tried to give us so many morals and values. Uh, she wanted us above all things to know how to treat people. She's just a very big hearted person. People who are around her typically really enjoy being around her when she's well. Um, she also struggles with psychosis. So it's hard to know what's real, you know, even today sometimes. And I think just growing up, you know, in an environment that tells you that your reality is not actually happening. Um, It can be really hard to hold on to what you know and what's true. But my mother, she really was um, deeply committed to teaching us about our ancestors growing up and our, um, you know, the people who came before us who made all these sacrifices for me to have things like education, for me to be able to travel, for me to be able to walk into the front door of a building, you know, is really honor and a privilege that I really deeply value. And so that that was kind of the gift that my mother gave me. She was an avid reader. She loved to read about Harriet Tubman, about Malcolm X, and just really discuss these things with us from the time I can remember, probably about three years old. We were having these conversations about Angela Davis and the Black Panther Party. And I think that's what always kept me going, you know, knowing that people before me also suffered And they were able to turn that suffering into healing, really, you know, to be able to promote um, pride and culture and beauty. Um, So those were some some of the principles that I kind of grew up on. Um, Really just love, just love for myself, love for my culture and love for people in general. Mm, Wow, what a precious gift. Yeah, to to receive from from your mom and to know that your own value and to know that uh, despite the circumstances you you have yourself and 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 culture and values that that's and community uh, and I community yeah. also growing up in poverty we had to we needed each other you know we had to help each other if someone needed sugar if some like when we didn't have hot water because the gas got cut off we would go to hell and you know get a bucket and get hot water to either take, you know, just different things that people do when they have to improvise. When they don't have what they need, they have to really kind of come together and help each other. So we shared food, you know, when we had food stamps and other people, other children were hungry. My mom would cook for the whole community. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, when she was well, it was she was a very communal, loving person. Um, and she really instilled that in me. And I think she got that from my great grandmother who was a very joyful person, uh, very open-hearted, warm and loving at her death. Actually, she was just very peaceful. And this was a woman who was a sharecropper at nine in Texas, you know, who experienced a lot of racism, who experienced a lot of trauma and cultural trauma, especially. Um, But my great grandmother, she also taught me how to play piano when I was four years old. So the same person who was a sharecropper at nine years old has the patience and the compassion and the love and commitment 
and the, you know, the generativity, if you will, to pass on something to the next generation. So that's kind of why I'm so committed to legacy burdens, transforming legacy burdens to legacy gifts for not just my son, but for all children. You know, really all of our children in the United States of America are needing someone, many someone, many of us to be uh, people who can influence and inspire them uh, despite what they might see on, in their communities or in their world. Right, right. Um, yeah, one of the, the the obstacles to healing is feeling alone, right? Being alone with the trauma, being alone with the pain and feeling that something is wrong with us. And And you're describing... If there is, I think we don't want to um, limit and say this is the path to healing. That's also very limiting. I think it's there is universality, but there is also something very individual and personal for each one of us. But definitely uh, having that um, perspective intergenerational, it's a it's we're learning that more and more um, our healing is intergenerational. Um, before we go there, I was wondering, maybe we are more linear with your own journey. And so what led you to the military and yeah. to, to, to join the military? What? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from a little town in Texas called Wichita Falls, where there is an air force base. And I remember writing to the recruiter in our town um, when I was a freshman in high school. And I told him my dream is to join the air force because I saw these young people that, you know, were pe mainly people of color who were able to come from various places and really kind of have an opportunity at the American dream. That's what I saw it as. Mm -hmm. And my original plan was to marry someone in the military, which is a common, <laughs> a common goal in my small town. All the girls just want to get married and live happily ever after. That didn't happen. So I had to join the military for myself. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I tell people. But right before I joined the military, I was actually, I graduated high school at 17 years old. And for the three months leading up to me, turning 18 uh, to join the military, I was actually sleeping in my car. So, uh, you know, it's like we we do things because we we need to. You know, I wanted to go to college. I wanted to, again, have access to the American dream, but I didn't have a lot of support or resources to do that. With my mother, you know, at the time she was actually in jail um, and I didn't really have a guidance or a guardian, um, if you will. I didn't, I felt really scared about how to be an adult. So not only did I join the military, but as soon as I joined the military, I started going to school shortly after about six months of me being in the military. I was in the medical uh, facility in the Air Force. I was a, a, a medical administration technician. So I would uh, go to school. I would go to work from 7.30 to 4.30, Monday through Friday. And then I would go to school from 5 to 10 p.m. every night and do my homework on the weekends. And it was really intense, super intense at the time, you know, so I have to do that for six years straight for my first two degrees wow. and um, the military allowed me to do an educational leave of absence for my social work degree. So I was able to go to school full time. And that was a really wonderful experience and truly a privilege, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my journey. I joined the military. I got access to skills, professional skills and kind of learning how to do things in a work wise, you know, in a work world, if you will. 
and also learning how to be a human and how to be an adult and how to have stability and security and how to be part of a team uh, that wasn't as dysfunctional as my family, <laughs> you know, how to communicate, how to manage conflict, how to manage different personalities and different cultures. A lot of people gravitate towards the military because it's a way to um, also get access to citizenship in the United States of America. So there was a lot of, you know, people from so many different countries that I was really fascinated by their culture. Um, and so the military is a big part of my experience. I was in the military for 18 years, got to navigate different parts of the military mental health and medical uh, system, if you will. And I really learned how to advocate for the people who didn't have a voice, um, for folks who might be in physical pain or emotional pain and suffering. Uh, like I said, I was an administrative technician for the first 11 years, and then I became a therapist uh, or a social worker because I really wanted to do even more to just be present with people if they were hurting. Wow, what a journey. What a, and and I, I'm so amazed by you finding gifts wherever you move in your life. That seems like what for some of us this would have been the nightmare to be in the military and yet you found your gifts and and resilience and resources there so that uh, seems like a big part what did you find about yourself or what did you learn about yourself being in the military and were you also experiencing racial discrimination there or um how and how did you how were you with that? What? Yeah, I, I, well, what I learned about myself was that I was very much taught to doubt myself in every way um, before joining the military. In my childhood, I realized that I didn't, I wasn't confident at knowing what I knew. Even if I studied it, even when I went to school, I was unsure about being able to say, I know this. Um, that just wasn't that was very frowned upon growing up in Texas as a little black girl. And exactly in our town, uh, the KKK would have quarterly rallies in the downtown area. And that's something that still happens in Texas. So it wasn't safe to say, oh, I know that this is wrong or I don't think that this is right. You know, those were not things that I could say out loud or even admit to myself, really, because it was just too scary. Um, but throughout my military journey and as I was sitting with people and learning other people's stories and their ways of not knowing or being unsure and unclear. And as I was advocating for others, I kind of learned how to advocate for myself. Um, you know, advocacy is definitely something that's like a skill building process. And so the more you do it or the more you practice it, I think the better you get. And then going to social work school, of course, is all about advocacy and community building. Um, so I learned that I'm a leader, you know, and that wasn't that wasn't portrayed to me. I never saw myself represented as a leader, you know, someone like me represented as a leader. But of course, as the oldest of three girls and then spending 18 years in the military, of course, you know, it's like there was always these leadership skills there. But I started to really own and recognize them uh, throughout my military career. Wow. <laughs> I'm so uh, incredible. Yeah, speechless in awe about this. The, the way you're, as I was saying, the way you're able to transform, you've been able to transform everything into a gift. I kind of feel your grandmother, grand grandmother there. So for some yeah. reason, I feel that your grand grandmother has been like pushing you and cuddling you. And, yes. Yeah. 
I'm so glad to hear you say that because some people don't believe in those kind of things. You know, I was thinking when I was uh, I was sitting last night and reflecting on non-duality, I was thinking, you know, that it's hard for some people to hold both and that things that seem, you know, really strange or odd can also be very true and real. Um, and ancestral medicine or ancestral healing is something that's very important to me. I consider uh, Mama Maya Angelou a very uh, important source of wisdom and guidance in my life. And my grand, my great grandmother, Mildred, she reminds me so much of Mama Maya Angelou. She had that very sweet, deep, wise spirit. Um, and I feel that inside of me and I take it with me everywhere I go. Yeah. Well, I'm still in shock that someone like I have my own stereotypes about the military and <laughs> everything in you represents, I mean, destroys any stereotype that I've ever held. And it's, I just <laughs> love that. that uh, <laughs> we think we know, but again, healing can come to in so many different forms and finding ourselves, the journey can be, it's um, infinite. Um I wonder, so you've always knew, it sounds like you were connected to your grandmother and your great grandmother. So you had connection to your lineage, at least on your mother's side. Um, well, I know that big part of your journey was also going to Ghana as part of your studies. Uh, was that inspired in any way in finding or learning more about your lineage or what what brought you to Ghana? Yeah. Yes, my mother would always talk about, like I said, you know, our ancestors and uh, as far back as she would go would be Harriet Tubman. You know, that Harriet Tubman freed thousands of slaves. You know, my mom would tell us we would read the books. Um, but I always as a kid was very curious. Well, what about before that? You know, what's the story? Who were we before that? You know, before Africans were enslaved, what was the culture? What was their beliefs? What were their spiritual practices? And um, when I was studying human behavior as a social worker, I realized that I didn't really see myself in the, the content or the curriculum. The only time I really saw, you know, in any kind of imagery around blackness or, you know, being a BIPOC person uh, was in statistics or stereotypes. And so I told one of my professors, she you know, was doing this trip to Ghana. I was like, I really want to go. And I actually didn't need the credits because this was my second master's degree. My first is in public administration, which is about advocacy at work, advocating for employees and, and systems and understanding systems. Um, and so I told her, you know, I don't need this course, but I deeply need to be there. Um, and so we were trying to figure it out. And she said, you know what? I think you should just go as our graduate assistant and we can't pay you, but we can pay for your food. We'll pay for your plane ticket and we'll pay for your lodging. And I was like, what else is there? <laughs> all I, needed. I was a graduate student getting, you know, getting the opportunity to go to Africa for the first time ever with 60 other students. Um, and I was going to be leading the students and holding community with the students there. Wow. So it was a really amazing opportunity that I feel like my ancestors just kind of dropped in my lap. Um, and as you said, I've always been the type of person to just really value and be grateful for whatever comes my way. So what did you find yeah. in Ghana, being in Ghana? <laughs> what did you find about yourself and how did it feel to be there? 
It was really the first day was really disorienting, actually, because everything that had been portrayed to me about Africa was very negative and um, like a lot of, you know, war torn nations or hungry people or orphans. And it was the complete opposite of that. When we landed, I remember asking one of my African friends that was in social work school with me. I was like, what's it going to be like when we land? And, you know, like. Are we, what I imagined was like this middle of safari kind of place, you know, <laughs> descending among the animals. Um, and it wasn't. It was like I was landing in Atlanta, you know, to be honest. It was like, it's a city. They have hotels. They have beaches, you know. Um, and there was so much culture was what I love. There was music everywhere. There was food. There were people dancing and singing and just really enjoying life. And it, it helps me understand that the material things that we think we possess aren't really where we we have value, you know, that we don't our value is not based on what we have. It's what we experience with other people um, and that communal culture of everyone supporting each other and being really valuing togetherness and helping each other and just being there for one another. It was the first time in my life that I had that much support from people that should have been considered strangers, but they were really like family. Um, and when I got to the slave dungeons, because uh, in Ghana, it's predicted that more than 90 percent of enslaved Africans came through Ghana because there were 13 slave castles along the coast of Ghana. And uh, when I was in the slave dungeons for the first time, I was really it was kind of a, a process, if you will, of you know getting to know the culture first and having something to ground you in and then going into the pain and the history of that culture and and being being able to connect the dots, if you will, being able to connect the oppression and the intergenerational trauma that we see among African-Americans in the United States of America to this history of deep, deep suffering and brutality. And to know that like that level of pain is transmitted, you know, over and over and over from one generation to the next for hundreds of years. It really hit me like very it was this deep knowing that. This is this is why, you know, this is why so many people in my community are suffering. And if we start to acknowledge that, then we know we can actually heal it. You know, if we know the why for me, it's then we have the way forward as well. Yeah. Well, what a powerful experience to be to have that tangible experience of intergenerational trauma being there. And um Yes, we're learning places carry the energy of what has happened there for until it's healed and released. Um, and the more people get in touch with that pain, perhaps more can be released. And, uh, and how were you received in Ghana? Like, as coming as an African American woman, how were you perceived there? Um, I love that you said as an African-American woman, because in the military, I had to forget that I was a woman. Oftentimes, you know, it's like you're wearing this uniform that really camouflages your body. You know, it's it's very you need to be uniform. You need to be be able to, you know, um, fit in with the boys, if you will. Um, and so I would put my female identity often to the side and just do what needed to be done. But uh, in Africa, it was really important that I was a woman and I never got to forget that. You know, I couldn't even open a bank account without having a man go with me. 
And so that was very different for me. You know, that was definitely a transition to notice that I had all of these privileges in, you know, the United States of America that some women don't have in other places. And um, that felt really important for me to acknowledge and to to begin to kind of unpack and and deconstruct in my own self. Um, Because the patriarchy there is still, it feels still very relevant and real. Um, And I think that being an uh, African-American woman, um, they have a term actually in the 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 tradition the most common language in Ghana. The official language of Ghana is English because they were last colonized by the British people. Uh, before that, they had been colonized several times by the French, by the Portuguese, by Spanish uh, rule, but the longest rule was British, uh, the British rule. And so uh, this word that they say in their uh, traditional language is obruni. And I would be called a bruni, a bruni, you know, a lot. And I was like, why are they calling me a bruni? What is Because I knew that a bruni translated into foreigner. Um, and so, but actually, you know, as I was asking, you know, why do they call me a bruni? And sometimes the, the students would actually just call me white lady. And my skin was darker than some of theirs. So I was like, why are, you know, she's dark. I'm darker than this, this person who's calling me a white lady. Why is that? And they say, oh, because your language is like the people who colonized us. It's the language of our colonizer. And, and that, if you didn't have another language, if you didn't have, you know, the local or traditional language, you were considered an outsider. And so they also, the kids began to tell me that they actually thought that an African-American, the way that I got to America or the United States of America was because my mother, they, you know, they thought, they assumed that my mother was an African woman who married an American. They had no idea about the history of slavery that happened on their land because they were still learning their textbooks and all the curriculum was centered on British history. That's wow. insane. And how long ago was that? That was in 2010. Wow. No way. And so I, my, you know, then I had a new purpose there. I was teaching social, I was asked to teach social studies, which I thought was hilarious because how, how would I know? <laughs> you know? <Right>. But <laughs> I kind of integrated my knowledge and my understanding as an African-American woman to help them understand the history of the people that looked and, and you know, experienced the world like me. And so as they were learning about Dr. King and Malcolm X and this whole history of slavery, they were really shocked because it was in their own backyard. And so we actually did a field trip with those students, with about 12 of those students, um, high school students who got to go to the slave dungeons, um, who would have never been able to afford to travel, you know, that just two hours away. Most of those children, could their parents could even afford to pay for school uniforms or to pay for books or pens. I mean, very, very basic resources that many um, Americans take for granted are a big deal. You know, for a, a girl, for example, to be able to finish high school in Ghana is is very is such a privilege because of patriarchy and because of poverty. You know, if it comes down if it comes down to the girl being at home cooking, washing or selling water on the side of the road and school, most of the time, those other necessities are gonna win for the family. And so I would really, you know, try to encourage the girls and all the students. And I really wanted them to see this history so that they could be, they could understand that we were connected. Um, And when we went there and they really kind of dived deep into the history, they were, those 
some of those students are actually, you know, still reaching out to me today and thanking me for kind of opening their eyes so ahead of time. Um, now Ghana is a place uh, in the slave dungeons. They have a door called the door of no return. And when you left that door, that was when you knew that you were never going to return back home again, that you were going to be sold off into some unknown place. And you would lose, you know, your connection to your people, to your land, to your community and to even your family. And so now they've called it the door of return. And they're really inviting and encouraging more Africans across the diaspora from all over the world to come back and really, like you said, have that corrective experience, that healing and transformative experience of acknowledging the pain, but also letting it go, slowly deciding to, to grieve that that process and to allow it to slowly, you know, uh, leave your body little by little. Wow. wow. So powerful. Wow. Incredible. So the the intergenerational trauma, like that was a huge disconnect on both sides, on both sides. That's I never realized that. I thought it was only for the people who cross with the, on the other side in here in the U.S. But this, of course, they're ancestor disappeared and they had no connection to uh i don't know what percentage of their population was taken for slavery a huge percentage of their uh relatives just disappeared in and having that brutal disconnection that's also part of the collective trauma and the perpetration of the denial to me the story is like mind-blowing the perpetration of the denial of, of the truth, which we, there's no fantasy in the story, right? It's, it's, you cannot say, well, no, it was not really like, no, this is the story. People are taking, the, completely separated from their culture and taking in a different continent and enslaved. I mean, that's, you know, there's not much way to fudge it around. And the fact that some effect so evident is not recorded in the history that is presented to, to the people who have had it on their skin, on their ancestor, to me is beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you told me this story, when, when you first spoke, it really blew my mind. And today again, I totally feel it as it cannot be such a thing. It cannot be such a thing in this, in this moment, in this planet. We cannot have such a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, you know, what was the most eye opening part of it for me as well, because I, too, thought that everyone knew this history and, you know, what has happened. Um, But I also think about how, you know, we didn't have the Internet. People didn't have a way to be connected to each other. And now we do. Now we have YouTube, we have Instagram, we have ways of talking to each other and really connecting around the planet. I know some people, you know, they they think social media is just negative. You know, I created Black Therapist Rock using Facebook when I was actually stationed in Italy and I was able to connect with 30,000 Black therapists in a Facebook group. So I really think the power of the Internet, like we can't really downplay it or uh, minimize the the ability that it has to bring us together as human beings. Mm -hmm. Maybe, as you mentioned, the. Black Therapist Rock, uh, you could just speak a little bit about what uh, set you on that journey to to create the community and what need did you see was there that um, founding the the community helped serve? Uh, 
Well, I, I'll I'll be honest. I was a little selfish. It was a very personal need. Um, I had several personal needs kind of colliding at the same time. Um, I was on the heels of my own divorce. I was becoming a single mother as a military officer of a three, you know, at the time, two or three year old kid in Italy. Um, I had developed this community in Italy. I was at Aviano Air Base, which is 45 minutes from Venice. There's a huge African culture there and actually a very large Ghanaian presence there, people from Ghana. And so I had met and connected with a lot of people from Ghana there who were helping me with my son, very supportive. Like I said, anywhere you find People from West Africa, you see them supporting each other and trying to, you know, figure out how they can help each other get along. And so that was what I was experiencing in Italy, which was so refreshing. But I also still very felt very much felt disconnected from my own African-American culture because there is a difference, you know. Um, and so not being able to go to a store and get the magazines that I buy or the type of books that I like to read or, you know, books in English <laughs> in Italy can be very difficult to even find books in English. Um, and so just feeling very disconnected from my own culture. And then also um, I was on the heels of uh, processing what happened to Trayvon Martin and his mother's advocacy for justice um, as a mother myself of a boy. You know, I really became a, kind of terrified, actually, of what am I going to do when he gets older? You know, I felt like for the first time in both of our lives, we were in Italy and it was it wasn't it didn't feel dangerous to be black um, in Italy. It didn't feel like we could be killed there because of the color of our skin. Um, there weren't a lot of guns, you know anywhere really that wasn't it's not a very violent culture or place um and so I became terrified of returning back to the place that I was that I tend to call home you know mm -hmm. that I was supposed to call home is what I would say and uh when I created Black Therapist Rock it was also in the midst of Trump running for presidency and I was traveling around Europe and a lot of Europeans when they would hear my American accent they would just say what is happening in your country? <laughs> you know, I really just kind of wanted to hide and be like, I'm not part of that. Uh, but being in the military and being American, you know, people had questions of, you know, what's happening, what's going on. Um, and so I didn't know, I didn't have answers. And I thought, you know, between Trayvon Martin and the, his murder and that experience, that vicarious trauma, the Trump election, um, and just my own lived experience as a Black mother trying to guide and support a Black boy in this world, I was very scared and overwhelmed. And so I felt like I needed community. I needed some place to ground myself in truth and love and healing. And I thought, OK, if I get a couple of therapists together, maybe we could heal our own, do some of our own work together but then also take that out into the community and teach people about vicarious trauma, to teach people about racial trauma, intergenerational trauma, because there's a huge need for education. You know, had I not gone to grad school, if I didn't have the privilege of going to graduate school, I wouldn't know that the word racialized trauma even existed. Um, it's still not even in the DSM. It's not, you know, considered an actual diagnosis. So these are things that I had to teach myself to begin to be able to teach other people in my community. And uh, doing that and learning with other therapists just felt like the right thing, you know, the right way to go. So I created this Facebook group and I thought, oh, you know, maybe get a couple hundred people and, you know, 
rally together and do some good work in our community. And by the end of that first year, we had 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And within the first two years, we had 30,000 people. So I was like, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> you know, I really thought it was just something that I was yearning for personally, but this was something that a lot of people were yearning for. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the offerings or activities that you uh, you do now or uh, mm-hmm. create together as a community? Yeah, so uh, we actually got two really big partnerships our first year. The first one was IFS. I actually reached out to the CEO of IFS after having my own experience of healing with the IFS model. Mm-hmm. Um, coming out of the military, I, you know, that was the only thing I had done with my whole entire adult life. So I didn't know how to make my own choices. Like as simple, a choice as simple as what are you going to wear today? Where do you want to live? <laughs> you know, those were things that I never had a say in. So I, I kind of reverted right back to my 17 year old self who was sleeping in my, you know, I wasn't sleeping in my car, but it felt like this hopeless little girl who didn't really know which way to turn and, and what to do with her her own life. She was really good at advocating for others. But how do we manage our own stuff? Um, And so I had this 10 month intensive, uh, it was called a a trauma day center. And they used IFS where we got to speak for our parts and and have compassion for our parts and and really just hold our trauma lightly with love. And I was like, I'm a trauma therapist and I have no idea about this amazing model that just helped me get so much healing. And it got to the root cause, I felt. The CBT and the cognitive framework was really kind of a go-to for the the military world. It was like all about staying in our head and being able to intellectualize things. But to me, IFS took a little bit deeper into my heart and really understanding that there was things that I was carrying there that needed to be spoken and needed to be processed. And so I reached out to the CEO of IFS, who I'm really good friends with now today, and said, we really need more Black therapists trained in this model because legacy burdens and the African-American community, definitely, you know, there's some strong links there. And so IFS was one of the first partnerships we got. Internal Family Systems is basically a model that explains how our family and how our our childhood experiences live inside of us as a part of our personality and how we take those with us everywhere we go and kind of how they influence our choices, our behavior, our health, um, our whole entire life. And so uh, we, we've now gotten 250 Black therapists trained in internal family systems. And they have said the same thing, that they've had this deep healing experience around their own culture and racialized trauma, intergenerational trauma. And the other partnership that we got within our first year year was just like I said, these two were like a gift from the ancestors uh, was with Brene Brown, who, as we know, really looks at vulnerability and shame. Mm-hmm. And man, is there so much shame and fear of vulnerability in our community. So to be able to start to process that, you know, and unpack that and work with those parts of us that are afraid to to have feelings, that are afraid of being overwhelmed with our feelings um, is also important if you're going to talk about racialized trauma, because it's still happening. This is not, you know, something that you put a Band-Aid on and then it heals very nicely. You get cut every day. So how do you take care of that wound when it's continuing to be, you know, impacted? Well, then. Well, that that goes exactly to the next question I had, which is how does racialized trauma lives in in bodies, in families, in communities, and 
in structures of governance? Um, and where do we begin to uh, undo those? Undo, where do we stop perpetuating um, racialized trauma? And I wonder, one more piece I will add, if you make any distinction between intergenerational trauma, historical trauma, and racialized trauma, or how do you see them uh, working? I see, you know, trauma as kind of widespread. You know, trauma is, like you said, an overwhelming experience and being alone with no support to manage that overwhelming experience in our childhood when we, you know, we need someone there with us. We won't survive without our caregivers. And we know that um, in a very physical way. You know, I breastfed my son and he was very aware that I was his food source. I felt like a cow at times, I would say. (laughs) I I was very much in tune with my animal, you know, animal uh, nature, if you will. Um, But that is our our just ingrained need for human connection um, that you're carried, you know, by someone for nine months. And then you come out and they just kind of throw you and say, good luck. (laughs) That's kind of the way uh, a lot of parenting happens in the United States of America. So trauma to me is, you know, is traumatizing and it separates us from each other and from ourselves. And so to give people the gift of their self through IFS, that's kind of the goal is to get to know your higher or your deeper self, your authentic self versus these parts of us that have been shaped by fear and trauma and wounding. And then with shame resilience is what Brene Brown, uh, the goal of her work is to build a tolerance for shame, which, like I said, is very important if you're talking about historical trauma or intergenerational trauma, even in your own family, there may be things that never change for you. And if the experience doesn't change, how do you change your internal um, impact or your internal response to these, these persistent situations that are happening outside of you? And so between shame resilience and really having self-compassion is what I tell everyone. That's really what I believe is the cure for this trauma that we project onto each other. That's what happens. We project our pain and our wounding onto each other because we don't have language or we don't know what to do with it. And so really being able to honor those experiences and that they give us something. Like I said about all of my, you know, very traumatic experiences, I was able to take something from it to, to give with me, to take with me throughout my journey. Um, and so I think it's a process that when you learn the healing process and you're able to do that in community, especially when you're practicing, you know, I grew up very afraid of people because people weren't safe in my environment. Even my own family, it didn't feel like I could be seen or heard or valued for who I truly was so much that I dissociated so much that people thought I couldn't talk. People, when they hear me talk now, people who knew me as a child are usually very shocked because I was so quiet. I was very mute, um, very similar to Mama Maya Angelou. Um, I wrote a lot. I read a lot, but I rarely spoke. And I knew it just wasn't safe to it wasn't safe to have an opinion. It wasn't safe to think for myself in, the, in those times. And so, you know, really giving your voice back, having a compassionate voice inside of you that speaks to you gently and kindly and in a loving way when really hard things are happening Um, and not in a place of denial, but in a place of care and and just support and love and healing. Wow. 
That is a healing journey. I mean, what you're describing from what you were given, what we started with, you come to a place of, and you, and you emanate, you're, you're being emanates that self-compassion that radiates and includes the world that, that is healing. I don't know what else, if, if we have to describe healing, you're, you're embodying it. And, um, maybe one last question and then we open to the community and here I'm just wondering having a a boy um uh how from your own learning what are the things that you uh are you are committed not to pass on to him but also what is it that uh, how do you see you can empower him living in a world that racialized trauma is still very real it's still uh, is there he probably is going to be uh, confronted on a daily basis living in this country yeah um the other gift that internal family systems gave me or ifs gave me was that it gave me a language to parent from because i could be with the inner wounded child of myself i didn't need to parent from that place i could parent from a higher wiser adult self a self that wasn't you know wounded or traumatized and and projecting that onto him again that's if we don't have the space to to be with our own feelings and we project them onto other people and uh, that's kind of how intergenerational trauma happens because we don't have another way of being. Um, that's what happened with my mother and her mother. You know, it's just kind of what was. And so with IFS, we also say that there are four main collective legacy burdens. That is white supremacy culture, patriarchy, materialism and individualism. And specifically raising a boy, you know, a black boy at that, like you said, the intersection of white supremacy culture and patriarchy has really shown itself um, through his experiences to me. Uh, I really didn't understand what patriarchy did to boys and men and having him navigate that has been really eye opening. And it's also just helped me see how much that gender is a social construct you know, that maybe we don't need to conform to these gender, these these rigid gender roles and rules that are all about power. Um, and so when I see him, you know, kind of navigating towards uh, this culture of boys, you know, that we have to be tough and, you know, it's all about winning and competition and, um, and, and being able to really help him mold his own parts of that, you know, that feels very natural to him because I maybe don't understand it. You know, I'm not a boy. So I have to tell him, you know, I don't always love Marvel. You know, he loves Marvel. He loves <laughs> anime. He's very into, you know, those kind of things. And I've had to just experience it with him to understand the culture of it all but also help him see how it shapes his own parts. So one day he came home from school and he said, you know, mom, I always tell him you can be however you need to be around me. You don't need to be any way for me. Your role in this, this life is just to exist. Wow. Your, your role is not wow. to please me. It's not to, you know, make sure that I'm always happy or like it's, we can really just allow you to be who you are and who you want to express yourself as in the world, which is a gift in itself. A lot of children, of course, that deeply, you know. Uh, but one day he came home from school and he said, you know, I feel like my rage part, that's the one that I'm really afraid to have around you. I feel like I need to like 
you know, lock it away so it doesn't hurt you. And I said, well, let's let's figure out how we can empower that rage part to come out in, in ways that are actually helpful for you in life. You know, maybe you it's, you, be, you like to go outside and run. He loves to be outside. So being outside and just really being physical for him, it helps him get that energy out of his body, that energy of anger or whatever has happened, you know, in his day that maybe I wasn't there for. Um, also him being able to talk about it, you know, um, in the book, You Are Your Best Thing. I described a scenario in kindergarten where he came home crying because a kid told him that they didn't want to play with him because it was more fun to play with white children. And so to have your kid come home and say this, of course, my inner wounded child who grew up in Texas and experienced the same thing, you know, wanted to just to take him out of the school, you know, wanted to do something to change the scenario instead of just being with him in that sadness, in that grief, in that pain around this is racial trauma. You know, this is real. There's often not anything we can do to change our external circumstances, but we can change how we react to it on the inside and what it means to us. This doesn't mean that you're broken. This doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It means that someone's child has learned something, you know, really painful. And these are things that a lot of children learn. And so we can work with that. We can work with how to navigate our feelings versus dictating how other people treat us. Wow, what an empowered way of parenting and what a gift. Incredible, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because often we can get stuck in a victimhood by wanting to change. I mean, they go, it goes both ways. We have to change the structures of racism. But at the same time, we can't remain victims while the change is not here yet in a, in the fullness we need to. Yeah. What a oh. gift. What a gift. Uh, I'm seeing a, my young boy okay. having experience uh, and I'm seeing, I'm hearing the responses from my family compared yeah. to the response you're giving to your son. Yeah. yeah. I uh, bow to your knowledge and to your. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, powerful. Healing journey. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I love what Tracy Tracy says. Imagine if more black children, I didn't see the whole comment. That's what I'm always thinking. How can I share what I've learned with more people so we can have more healing in the world? You know, really, Maya Angelou also said, when you get, you give, you know. So I've I've gotten a lot, I feel like, from my journey and from mentors and teachers on my journey. And I just want to be someone who gives as much as I possibly can to the next generation and to people who are open to receiving what I have to give. Mm. Yeah. And as as you heal, you heal the next generation, but you also heal backwards. I mean, if there's backwards for your ancestors, for your mother as well, you are doing what she could not have done. So you're yeah. healing as well for her to the earth. So thank you, Zeran. And I hope we can continue this journey together in in other forms and times. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for being here. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review 
on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.